Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we pause for a moment. We thank you for your, the promise that you have said in the book of John that you will send the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. I pray, Lord, that as we spend the next few moments studying together, speak to our hearts once again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's review a little bit what we said already. Seven last plagues. Who do the plagues fall on? The plagues fall on those who have the mark of the beast. We saw a quotation from Ellen White where she said that the, the plagues initially are not universal. Um, now, there's different theories to this. I'm presenting, the, you know, my, I guess, my understanding of the passages. But you will hear other things, and it's not to say necessary. One is, you know, sometimes when things aren't exactly clear, um, you know, it's hard to be dogmatic. But I believe that, but where, did we, where did we look at and think that the death decree comes in? Between which two plagues? Between plague number two and plague number three. Because in plague number three, it says that they have, you know, uh, shed the blood. Ellen White's quotation says that it's not that they have, but it's as if they had shed the blood. Then we came to the sixth plague, and the sixth plague in verse 12 talks about the river Euphrates drying up. The river Euphrates, like in literal Babylon, supported the city in literal Babylon. In spiritual Babylon, the support of Babylon is the people. And so the people dry up their support for Babylon. <clears throat> in fact, we didn't read these verses. Let's read Revelation 17, verse 11 to 16. We see a similar parallel thing taking place in this book. Revelation 17, verse 11 to 16. It parallels what happens in Revelation chapter 16. <coughs> Revelation 17, verse 11. It says there, And the beast which was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goes into perdition. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Notice verse 13. These have, what does it say? One mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now, I'm not really going to go into detail on this, but I believe this is referring to the world. When it says there are ten kings, it's referring to the, the world divided up into ten kingdoms. Now, there's different theories as to what those ten kingdoms are. But the world, I believe, it says these ten kings have one mind verse 13, and they give all their power and strength unto the beast. Now let's keep reading down, verse 14. They will make war with the lamb, the lamb will overcome them. Verse 15, the waters which you saw are multitudes, people, nations, and tongues. But notice verse 16. Verse 16 says, and the ten horns which you saw, what does it say they'll do? These will hate the whore and will make her desolate. Notice the difference from verse 13 and 12 to 16. In verse 12 and, six and 13, it's like they have one mind, they give their power and strength to the beast. Well, by the time you get to verse 16, it says they hate the whore. In the space of three verses, they go from giving all their power and strength unto the beast to hating it. Complete transition. Now, I believe this is, in Revelation 17, is describing the same thing that's taking place in Revelation 16, verse 12. In Revelation 16, verse 12, the river Euphrates dries up. The people 
turn on, on, on false religion. In Revelation 17, it's described by the ten horns supporting the beast, and then the ten horns turning away from the beast. So this threefold union is Satan's attempt to rally his people. They're turning away from Babylon. It's too late for them now anyway, but they're still turning away. It's like, you know you're wrong, you can't do anything about it, but you still don't like the fact you're wrong. So they've turned away, but he then pulls this union of the three unclean spirits to rally his followers together again. Now the death decree that has been given in the time of the second and third plague is not enforced then. But it's told, okay, in two weeks' time, you can kill everybody, but not now. Okay? The book of Esther has a story like that. So I'm just reviewing the last few slides that we did. The decree issues the withdrawing of the protection of the law from the people and gives the people liberty to put them to death after a certain time. We believe that this is Jacob's time of trouble. When we say Jacob's time of trouble, why do we say Jacob's time of trouble? It's alluding to Jacob in the Bible in Genesis chapter 28, I think it is. What was it about Jacob's time of trouble? Let's recount the story. What happened? So Jacob, the whole story is he stole his brother's birthright, right? His brother gets angry and his brother says, after my dad has died, I will kill you. That's what he says. I will respect my father while he's alive, but as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill you. So Jacob flees his brother and goes to live in another country. While he's in the other country, he then eventually, after living there for how many years, he says, I need to go back. He goes back to his brother. On his way back to see his brother, he's heard the news that his brother does not want peace and his brother is coming with 400 men ready for war. Now, he's not a war man. He's got his wife, his kids, his cattle, his sheep. He's not ready to fight. And that night, the Bible says, he wrestled with an angel. And he's wrestling with this angel all night. And halfway through the night, sorry, halfway through the night, the angel touches him in the leg and pops his leg out of joint. Now, I don't know about you, I've never had a, um, a dislocated limb. I've heard that it's extremely painful. So Jacob, his leg is out of joint. Now, if you have to wrestle, you need two legs. You only have one leg, and he's holding on to this angel, and his leg is literally dangling, dangling out of joint in extreme pain. And the angel says, let me go. And he says, no, I will not let you go unless you. But think about it. Didn't Jacob already get a blessing? You understand what I mean? He already got a blessing. But he's saying, I can't let you go until you bless me. What, is, what does it mean? He knows he got the first blessing deceitfully. That's not the part we're worrying about. The part is he's clinging on because he still wants that assurance that he is blessed by God. And he's holding on. And he's, I mean, when you're holding on to someone so much, even in intense pain, your leg is out of joint. It shows the intense agony that he is willing to go through and intense mind uh, agony as well to plead, don't let me go until you bless me. Now, this is describing when we say Jacob's time of trouble for God's people at the end, it's meaning that for God's people at the end, they will go through a similar anguish of, body, of soul. 
praying to God, Lord, please, you know, I want the assurance. Now, we looked at these things here. Sunday law is passed. God's people give the loud cry that Babylon is fallen. Some are put into prison. Plagues begin to fall. Time of trouble begins. The wicked blame God's people. And after they blame God's people, we bring about the death decree. Now, great, controver great controversy, 615, 616 says, A decree will finally be issued against those who hallow the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. So it gives them liberty after a certain time to put them to death. Okay? So, let's read on. Great controversy, same page says, The people of God will then be plunged into scenes of affliction and distress described by the prophet as a time of Drake, Jacob's trouble. And here, early writing says the same thing. A decree went forth to slay them, which caused them to cry day and night for God. This was a time of Jacob's trouble. Now, what are the people crying about in Jacob's trouble? Think about it. What are they crying about? Notice here. At the time appointed, as the decree draws near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. It will be determined to strike in one night the decisive blow, which will utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. So let's say on whatever day, I don't know, whatever day it would be, like the end of October, that's when the decree is enforced. We can then go and get rid of these people, but let's plan and prepare and make sure we do it all clinically, all at once. And I'm guessing that it's going to be quite organized. Maybe. Someone's going to be fine. Okay, they're over there. Okay. Let's go over there. The people of God, some are in prison cells. Some hidden in solitary retreats in the forest and the mountains still plead for divine protection. While in every quarter, army... Companies of armed men, urged on by hosts of evil angels, are preparing for the work of death. It is this, in the, utmost, in the hour of utmost extremity, that the God of Israel will interpose for the deliverance of his chosen. So God's people are hidden. The death decree has passed. They're waiting for God. And in this hour of utmost extremity, the God of Israel will interpose for the deliverance of the chosen. Now, this is the key point here. I don't believe the righteous are concerned that they will die. They're not concerned, in a sense, that they'll die. That's not like, oh, no, we're going to die. Oh, no, I don't want to die. Perfect love casts out fear of things like that. Their, their, their concern is that through failure on their part, God will not be able to defend them as he would want to. Their concern is that they're pleading for God's honor, that his name is not reproached, that, they don't, that they, through their life, they don't cause God to be reproached. That's their concern. It's not pleading for their earthly life. At this point, I don't believe you know, God's people, in a sense, worried about whether they live or die physically. What their real um, desire is, is eternal life or eternal death. And so, it's not a human death they're concerned about. They're concerning for God's honor, 
They're concerning that God will be able to defend them. You know, the Bible says, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. There's a certain element of the judgment, certain element, not the whole thing, where God is being judged. In the sense that His claims are put on trial. Is my law holy? Is it righteous? Can man keep it? Well, yes, he can. Here's my evidence. In the lives of my people. So there's a certain element that God's people are vindicating God's claims of governance in the universe. So they're pleading for God's honor that his name is not reproached. The hour of execution, though, becomes the hour of deliverance. Amen? The time when they are to be executed is a time when God's people will be delivered. And this is where it gets interesting. So what we're going to do, I'm going to read, I'm going to um, continue from time of trouble into God's people delivered. And what we will see, I'm really just pulling some quotations from the book of um, Great Controversy. Controversy. If you haven't read that book, I would encourage you to read it. Take a chapter a day or two chap- one chapter for two days and just work your way through the book. Um, it starts off with the destruction of Jerusalem. It goes through the history of the early Christian church. It goes through the rise of America. And it goes through the closing scenes of this world's history. So if you're not a great fan of history, well, endure the first few chapters and get to the next ones. If you love your history, you'll love the first several chapters. It's great, great reading. But if you've never read it, read that book. Work your way through it. A lot of the quotations in this, this next one are coming from the chapters of the time of trouble. And there's a chapter called, as this presentation, God's people delivered. So if you've read those chapters and you're very familiar with them, what I'm going to about to share is not necessarily anything new. It's just highlights from those chapters that we're going to point on how God delivers his people. Okay? So we've brought our way up to the time of trouble now. Now, I don't believe the seven last plagues are going to last for a long, long time. I don't think physically, humanly, whatever speaking, it's possible they're going to drag on forever. I don't think it's going to be too long. We don't, we, we don't know how long they will be. The Bible hasn't given us any indication of time. After 1844, there's time longer. There's no more time prophecies. We don't know. But um, my guess is it's not too long. Okay? The Bible says, we've looked at this verse already, Revelation 13, verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Okay? So the decree is to kill. We've looked at that already in the previous uh, presentation. The decree is to kill. So look, a review. The plagues fall. The anger of the wicked is aroused. The death decree is passed sometime after probation closes while the plagues are falling, but it is not enforced straight away. We've looked at this already. I'm just reviewing this as we go along. Okay? At the time appointed, sorry, as the time appointed in the decree draws near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. We've read this one already. It will be determined to strike in one night a decisive blow which shall utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. Now, Jacob's time of trouble, we've looked at that, is Genesis 32. My apologies for getting it wrong. They are praying for the deliverance as well. I mean, yes, they're not concerned about their life 
as primary, but I'm sure they're still praying for deliverance. Amen? And they're praying that they have the faith to make it through. These are the things they're praying, and they're praying for God's blessing on them, that they don't reproach God. Jacob's time of trouble. Notice, even though the saints are sealed at this point, and this is kind of the part that is almost hard to get the head around. Even though the saints are sealed, they've received the baptism of the Spirit in the latter rain. They've worked miracles during the loud cry. Yet after all this, they enter a period of intense pressure. Doesn't that seem strange? They've just experienced the latter rain. They have seen sick people healed. They have seen miracles take place. And now they go into this period almost of, well, it's not doubting, but this period of intense pressure. And this is the reason why. They look back over their lives and they see what? They see little. And it's true. How much is in their life of any worth? None. It's righteousness by faith next door. They, gotta get to, they have to get to the point where they look at themselves and they're like, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not standing in the forest and going, yeah, that loud cry, man, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Man, the way you preached that message and baptized those people, man, that was powerful. Now, maybe they are recounting testimonies. I don't know. But there's not going to be any pride or arrogance in what they say. None. They're still at this point feeling pressure. They're still at this point pleading, Lord, I don't want to cause any reproach. I don't want to cause any shame to your name. After all this is over, they enter this period. Why does God allow them to be tested so severely when probation has already closed? A logical question, right? Probation has closed, take them to heaven, why the test? It's not, well, well, the word test is kind of wrong because it's not really a test. They can't fail it because they've already passed. But God knows they won't fail. God knows them. He knows they won't fail. And it's almost, in my opinion, it's almost like the final proof of God to the universe, of his chosen people. I'm taking these guys to heaven. This is the clear evidence that these people are fit to be with us in paradise. Because I'm sure in the back of the minds of some angels are like, "Mm, I've been following that guy all over the place. I know what he does. I know what she does too. In the back of some of the angels' minds, they'll be like, God, mm. And it's almost like the time of trouble, Jacob's time of trouble. Okay, probation's closed. And like the devil's throwing everything he can at God's people, and they still are clinging to God, not letting go. Humble, no pride. God says, look, I told you. Just like Job, look. Throw what you want at them, but don't touch their life, and they will still stand for me. And so God's people like Job, they stand for him. They won't fail. Notice here. Though God's people will be surrounded by enemies who are bent upon their destruction, yet the anguish which they suffer is not a dread of persecution. They're not scared of the persecution. 
They fear that every sin has not been repented of and that through some fault in themselves, they will fail to realize the fulfillment of the Savior's promise. So it's an agonizing of soul. It's an agonizing of heart. I will keep you from the hour of temptation, which will come upon the word, Revelation 3.10. If they could have the assurance of pardon, they would not shrink from torture or death. But should they prove unworthy and lose their lives because of their own defects of character, then God's holy name would be reproached. This is their concern. They don't want to reproach God. There's no pride here, nothing. They don't want to cause God's name to be reproached. This is what's causing the anguish of heart. Now, the wicked people, we're told they have a time when they have the death decree. They are so eager to kill that they don't wait till daylight. They can't wait till daylight to execute the decree. So right at midnight, they are ready to work. Now, this is the beautiful part. This last hour between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. will be the last time the saints will agonize over anything. Beautiful. They know the death decree is coming. And that hour... You know, this is the thing. Do any of you think this like, well, I'm studying this now, so I know it. So if I know that um, I haven't got the plagues, this is... You ever thought this way? Well, if I know that I have not received the plagues, no boils, no this, no that, then I know I'm in heaven. You ever thought this way? So if I know that I haven't got the seven last plagues, then logically I know I'm in God's people, so why would I worry? You ever thought that? See, some of us may be smart enough to figure that out. But they're not, notice what the God's people, God's people are not worried that their place in heaven is not secure. Their fear or their worry or their intense anguish is not a personal preservation, but it's about defending God. Defending Him and His name and His honor. That's more important than whether they get to heaven or not. Notice here, could men see with heavenly vision, they would behold companies of angels that excel in strength, stationed about those who have kept the word of Christ's patience. With sympathizing tenderness, angels have witnessed their distress and have heard their prayers. They are waiting the word of their commander to snatch them from peril, but they must wait a little longer. The people of God must drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism. The very delay so painful to them is the best answer to their petitions. As they endeavor to wait trustingly for the Lord to work, they are led to exercise faith, hope, and patience, which they, which have been too little exercised during their religious experience. Hmm. Because they've exercised so little patience and faith and hope, it's like God's like, well, it's not going to, you need a bit more now. Stretch them that bit more. As the hour draws near, the angels are there. Now, there's four circles of angels that appear. You have the righteous, and around the righteous, you have holy angels protecting God's people. Amen? So God's protecting his people. Then around the holy angels, you have wicked, wicked people who want to kill them. Then around the wicked people, you've got evil angels driving them on, pushing them on. 
Maybe they take the form of men. I don't know. That's speculation. But there's like four circles. Imagine every pocket of believers around the world, every pocket of God's people, wherever they might be. Whether it's in America, Malaysia, China, Australia, every pocket of God's people, there's going to be a group of angels surrounding them, surrounding them, surrounding them. God will protect all his people. He's not, oh, we forgot those guys over there. No, he'll protect all his people. Okay? Deeper than the darkness of the night falls upon the earth. Then a rainbow shining with the glory from the throne of God spans the heavens and seems to encircle each praying company. The angry multitudes are suddenly arrested. Their mocking cries die away. The objects of their murderous rage are forgotten. With fearful foreboding, they gaze upon the symbol of God's covenant and long to be shielded from his overpowering brightness. So right when they want to execute the decree, what appears? A rainbow shines with the glory from God's throne, spans the heaven, and encircles each praying company. You've got all these pockets of believers all over the world, and a rainbow comes and seems to encircle them. The angry multitudes are arrested, they're mocking cries, and, and they forget they want to kill them, and they long to be shielded from the glory and brightness of God. I mean, God's watching down the earth and just, just about, it's like, it's like just when everyone is about to be killed, he's like, Tchum. this rainbow covers every believer. Everything in nature seems turned out of its course. The streams cease to flow. Then dark, heavy clouds come up and clash against each other. In the midst of the angry heavens, is one clear space of indescribable glory whence comes the voice of God. So the picture that the, the believers are there praying, about to be killed, rainbow comes and encircles them. And then in the midst of the angry heavens is a clear space of indescribable glory where the voice of God is then said, is then spoken. The voice of God is spoken. Where's this clear space where the voice of God comes from? This is early writings, similar. Notice here. Dark, heavy clouds come up and clash against each other. The atmosphere parted and rolled back. Then we look up through the open space to Orion, whence came the voice of God. How, I mean... What is it going to be like to hear the voice of God booming from the heavens, coming down? Not like a whisper. I mean, it's like we heard the voice in the distance. He says, we heard the voice coming from the heavens through Orion. The voice of God comes. Powerful, deep and resonating voice. Now, Revelation 16, verse 17 to 21, talks about the seventh plague coming just before the coming of Christ. Starts at the midnight hour that men have set to execute God's people. Let's turn to that, that plague, Revelation 17, 16, verse 17 to 21. 
It says, in the seventh vial, angel poured out his vial in the air, and there was a great voice from the heavens saying, it is done. There you have the voice of God. It cries, it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great, and the great city was divided into three parts. Verse 20, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. So here we have the plague starting with the words of God, it is done. Then the islands move, there's great earthquake, hail falls upon the earth, not going to be a good place to live on an island at that time but don't worry God will protect his people amen I live on an island so you know my mom's from an island my dad's from an island I'm just an island person but uh, I know God will protect his people so Revelation 16 verse 17 to 21 is the seventh plague it comes just before the coming of the Lord and starts at the midnight hour that men have set to execute God's people. Notice here. The mountains shake like a reed in the wind and ragged rocks are scattered on every side. There is a roar as of a coming tempest. The sea is lashed into fury. There is heard the shriek of a hurricane like the voice of demons upon a mission of destruction. The whole earth heaves and swells like the waves of the sea. Its surface is breaking up. Its very foundations seem to be giving way. Mountain chains are sinking. Inhabited islands disappear. The sea ports that have become like Sodom for wickedness are swallowed up by the angry waters. You know, most of the wicked cities of this world are seaports. The big historical cities are all on the coast. San Francisco, Los Angeles, London, New York. They're coastal cities. They'll be swallowed up by the angry waters of the seventh plague. Now there's going to be a resurrection. Notice here. Turn your Bibles to these texts. Revelation 20, verse 6. Revelation 20, verse 6, the Bible says, Blessed and holy is he that has part in which resurrection? The first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. So this is talking about the first resurrection. There's a blessing to those who come up in the first resurrection. Go back to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Daniel 12. And verse 2, the Bible says, And many of them that sleep in, sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's two resurrections. That's the whole teaching of the millennium. The first one, you're blessed and holy if you come up in the first resurrection. Some will come to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame and contempt. If you pass away before Jesus comes, pray that you are coming up in the first resurrection. It's just like going to sleep. 
No big deal. Now, notice what I want to share with you. This is kind of like a little smaller point, but it's important nonetheless. We are told that there will be a special resurrection just before Jesus comes. Maybe a few hours, a few moments, a few minutes, I don't know. Just before Jesus comes. In great controversy, page 637, it says, All who have died in the faith of the three angels' messages come forth from the tomb glorified to hear God's covenant of peace with those who have kept His law. There is a special resurrection just before Jesus comes that is different, so to speak, from the resurrection that happens exactly when He comes. And the special resurrection just before He comes is for all those who died in the faith of the third angel's message. I believe this means, this is my interpretation, all those who have died since 1844. The third angel's message began to be preached in 1844. So all those who died since 1844, they're raised a little bit before the second coming, not a lot, but a little bit as a special privilege. They have preached the three angels' message. They have, I mean, you know, I think of some of the faithful Adventist pioneers. God will resurrect them just before the second coming, so they also have the privilege to see the the cloud the size of a man's hand coming from the distance. So they get to witness the final, final moments. It's a special privilege. It's like you were part of the, the final message that was preached to the whole world. I'll resurrect you just before Noah and just before Elisha and just before Peter and James and John. Just before them. I mean, isn't that amazing that this generation since 1844 has a special privilege more so than maybe the apostles and the prophets of the Bible. So just before he comes, there'll be a special resurrection of the righteous. Now, there is also a special resurrection for the wicked as well. This is going to be rough. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye will see him. And they also, which what? Pierced him. There is a special resurrection for those who killed Jesus. Now they get it rough. They die three times. They died already. They'll be resurrected and then die again. Then they'll be resurrected at the end of the millennium and then die again. It's no small thing to kill Jesus. You know, in Matthew chapter, turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 and verse, no, not 27. Matthew 26. Is it 26? Yes, it's 26. And verse 63 and 64. Matthew 27, verse 63 and 64. The Bible says, But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power 
and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus is here talking to Caiaphas, and he says to Caiaphas, you will see me coming in the clouds of heaven, sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This was like a prophecy to Caiaphas. You're going to see me coming. You're going to be resurrected. And this Matthew 26, verse 64, matches with Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, Behold, he comes with a cloud. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So just before Jesus comes, there's a special resurrection for the righteous, those who have died in the faith of the three angels' message, and there's a special resurrection for the wicked, those who have pierced Jesus. We're told that the saints will sing Psalm 46. The book of um, Great Controversy brings out that there appears in the sky the hand of God holding two tables of stone, and the voice declares the day and hour of his coming. Just a short time before, we don't know how much time before, who knows? Short, short time before, but we do not know how much time before? Okay, notice here. Great controversy, page 640. The Israel of God stand listening with their eyes fixed upward. Their countenances are lighted up with his glory and shine as did the face of Moses when he came down from Sinai. The wicked cannot look upon them. And when the blessing is pronounced on those who have honored God by keeping his Sabbath holy, there is a mighty, a mighty shout of victory in God's people. See, the agonizing is over now. Now there's a shout of victory. There's a shout of victory. Soon, this comes right after. So soon there appears in the east a small black cloud about half the size of a man's hand. It is the cloud which surrounds the Savior and which seems in the distance to be shrouded in darkness. The people of God know this is the sign of the Son of Man. And in solemn silence they gaze upon it as it draws nearer the earth, becoming brighter and more glorious until it is a great white cloud. So this cloud comes closer and closer and closer. Even at that moment though, notice what they say, the, the righteous, even at that moment, after they've been delivered, the saved still ask the question, who should be able to stand? They see Jesus coming. They've just been delivered from the hour of, uh, of execution. They've been delivered. Jesus is coming. And they still cry out, who shall be able to stand? And the reason why they're crying out is because it is appropriate that humanity should feel its weakness in the presence of God. Jesus is coming with all the holy angels, all the glory of God, and humanity should feel its very weakness as God's glory burst on the earth. Then the voice of Jesus is heard saying, Great Controversy, page 641, My grace is sufficient for you. The faces of the righteous are lighted up, and joy fills every heart, and the angels strike a note higher and sing again as they draw still nearer to the earth. Amid the reeling of the earth, the flash of lightning and the roar of thunder, 
the voice of the Son of God calls forth the sleeping saints. He looks upon the graves of the righteous and then raising his hands to heaven, he cries, Awake, 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 you that sleep in the dust and arise. Throughout the length and breadth of the earth, the dead shall hear that voice, and they that hear shall live, and the whole earth shall ring with the tread of the exceeding great army of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The voice of God will call the righteous from their grave, and they'll come up all over the world. Just resurrect. Isn't that going to be amazing to the resurrection? That's the privilege. I think that's one of the privileges that the redeemed have to see the resurrection. And that's why I believe God resurrects those who have died since 1844 in the faith of the three angels' message. He resurrects them, especially at the end. I mean, that's a privilege. Imagine just watching the resurrection take place of people just coming up from the ground. From the sea. All around. I mean, what about the sailors that have died out sea and... I don't know. Is he going to bring them up from the spot where they died? Who knows? I don't know how God's going to do it. God is not dependent on physical matter to resurrect someone. Amen? He just speaks them back and they are as they were. Many martyrs burned to death. There's nothing left of them. People have died in the sea and the shrimps and the crabs have eaten their bodies. There's nothing left of them. God will bring matter back as he speaks it into existence. Angels gather together his elect from the four winds from one side of heaven to the other. Little children are born by holy angels to their mother's arms. I like that image there. Little children are taken to their mother's arms. Maybe they lost them. They didn't get to raise them. Little children are born by holy angels to their mother's arms. Friends long separated by death are united, never more to part, and with songs of gladness ascend together to the city. I mean, imagine the reunion that will happen as they go up to the city with a new body, perfect eyesight. I mean, you know when you're with a whole group of people and you're all going somewhere, there's kind of that feeling of camaraderie, togetherness. We're all going somewhere together. You're driving in a convoy and everyone's going together. You're walking in a big crowd. You're all going one way. Imagine being amongst hundreds of thousands of millions of people, all resurrected and on your way to heaven. And you look off in the distance about two miles away, and you're like, aha, there's so-and-so from KL, I know them. Let me go say hello. And you put your arm forward, and like a Superman stand, you fly over there and just zoom over there. Hey, hey, how's it going? Hey, good to see you, good to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, meet my friend. And then people are just be zigzagging, zooming across here and there, meeting each other on the way to heaven. And we don't think we're just going to be flying. You know, people will be zooming here, zooming there, talking, hugging, laughing, joking. You made it. Oh, praise the Lord. You made it. Praise the Lord. I don't know how I made it. Praise the Lord, too. You know, <laughs> like, why are you here? <laughs> like, what? What are you doing here? You know, I mean, that's the purpose for the millennium in, in, in reality. The reason why God takes us to heaven for 1,000 years is so that we can answer every question that we have. Because we'll have answers. There will be questions, I mean, sorry, we'll have questions that we have no answers to, and God wants to take the time to answer every one of our questions. 
And he takes us to heaven. The Bible says we go through the pearly gates. As we go through the pearly gates, we assemble at the sea of glass. We know there's going to be hundreds of thousands of millions of people in heaven. And so I think when we get to heaven, we should all get together again. Amen? We should have a meeting point. Where should we meet in heaven? The tree. There's too many people at the tree. You can't say the tree. Everyone's going to meet at the tree. We have to have a new point. This is where we're going to meet. You ready for this? We meet. Let me show you. I'll draw the map. Hmm? I know already. Okay, what have I just drawn? That's the city. That's the north side, south, west, east. That's where we meet. The third gate on the east side. That's what I tell everyone. We meet at the third gate on the east side. And then we go in. So you might have to wait there a little bit. It's okay. Maybe I'll wait for you. It's okay. I'll be patient. Let's meet there. Third gate north, east side. And then together, we march in the city. The gates are going to be huge. You know how big the city is going to be from there to there? 375 miles. That's what? 500k? Give or take? Huh? No, this, the wall. If, the, if that's 375 miles, how big do you think the gates are? You know, we always think the gate is like as big as that wall. But if the wall is 375 miles, each gate is one pearl. One singular pearl is the gate. Now, let's just say for argument's sake that the gate is one mile or two kilometers wide. If there's 500k of, of wall and each gate is two kilometers, there's only six kilometers of gate and 494 kilometers of wall. That seems disproportionate, wouldn't you say? Can you imagine a gate being bigger than two kilometers? Imagine if the gate was 10k. Even still, that's only 30k of gate and 470 kilometer of wall. I think when we get to heaven, our minds are just going to be blown at the size, the grandeur, and the beauty of what God has prepared for us. Imagine seeing a gate. I mean, just a gate, a boring gate. A gate that 10, 20 kilometers wide, and it's one pearl. I mean, that's just the gate. We haven't even got into the city yet to see how beautiful the city is. That's just the gate. The Bible says, our eye hasn't seen nor has even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for us. You know, when I travel around this world, or even around the country I live in, there are some beautiful places in this world, don't you think? I mean, you live in a, one of a, quite a beautiful part of the world, Southeast Asia. There's some beautiful islands and seas and corals and, and beaches and so on around here. 
You know, when I, when I look at a National Geographic magazine or I re look at an atlas of the world and I look, oh, the Himalayas, beautiful. Ah, oh, you, know, you know, such and such a beach in Thailand or Malaysia, beautiful. And I look about Victoria Falls in, in Africa, beautiful. And I look at all these places like, beautiful. If heaven was just the best this world was, all put together, I'd be happy. Like if you just took the best places on this planet, put them together, I'd be happy. Most of us would be happy, right? That would be good enough for us. But we're told, that's a pale comparison. We have no idea what God has prepared for us. So may God keep us faithful. I hope we meet again on this world. But if we don't meet again, where, we, where do we meet? Which one? Which one? There's three. Gate three. The third one north on the east side. May God bless you. I pray as you, may you continue to study the final events, to have an understanding of where we are. We've just done a brief, in a sense, overview. I would encourage you to read the final five or ten chapters of Great Controversy in particular, to look at the final events of this earth's history, what the issues are involved. But I pray that your experience may be one today and going forward where your daily walk with the Lord is one that is preparing you on a daily basis to receive the latter rain. Because of all the subjects we've looked at, Sunday law, God's people delivered, the real clinical key one is the one on the latter rain. Because that one determines if we get to enjoy everything else. And what determines that is if we're living with Christ every day now. Let's bow our heads, we'll close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these, this time we've been able to spend over the last few days studying your word together and looking at the final events of this world's history. But we see, Lord, that the final events in the future, they really start today, now, with the very simple, mundane decisions that we make on everyday basis. Prepare us, Lord, each day to stand with you in the future is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.